Hello and welcome to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus and I am glad that you've joined us again for this episode of the podcast. We are continuing in a series on eschatology, right? Uh, If you've missed the previous episode, then you need to go back and listen to that one because this one is going to build on that episode. In our first episode, we showed that when Jesus said this generation will not pass away before all these things take place in Matthew 24, He meant the people living in his day, his contemporaries. We considered other interpretations of the phrase this generation and saw that they came up lacking. And we have to wrestle with um, that fact honestly, right? That when he said this generation, he really meant it. He meant his contemporaries. Now, just a reminder, as we continue in this series on eschatology, that eschatology is a tertiary issue, right? This is not something that should divide Christians or break fellowship. Right? Because of your eschatological views, uh, you should still be able to fellowship within the same local church and still be charitable to one another. So these are tertiary issues, but just because they're tertiary issues does not mean that they're not important. As we said, eschatology matters because how you view the future is going to determine how you live today. So with that, let's jump on into today's episode where we're going to consider what end was Jesus and his disciples talking about the Theotivity podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. All right, so we're considering what end was Jesus and his disciples talking about in Matthew 24. When Jesus says the last days, we should ask, the last days of what? Right? Many Christians today assume that they were talking about the end of the world. Uh, that, it, that is, you know, the events leading up to the end of the temporal existence and the ushering in of the eternal state. However, although this understanding is popular, is it actually what is being taught here? There's no lack of examples from the history of Christians trying to predict the end from this and other passages. Dr. Damar comments that, quote, the history of date setting is long and torturous. Francis X. Gumelock catalogs more than a thousand false predictions over the past two millennia, everything from the identity of the Antichrist to the date of Christ's coming. Two common streams run through all of them. They were sure that they their predictions and that they were wrong. <laughs> now, I hope that these episodes, um, in these episodes, that we can consider some, you know, how sometimes the framework that we assume affects what we can see in a text, okay? If you have a framework, a certain framework in mind, a certain tradition, that affects how you can see a text. But as we challenge those preconceptions by taking a fresh look, sometimes we're able to see more clearly what was there all along. So if you're someone who has always understood this passage as speaking of something in the future, I'd encourage you to just entertain for a minute the consideration that there may be another way to look at it. And as you do this, I think you'll begin to see how this interpretation is actually a more natural reading of the text. Okay, so let's look at this text and the end of the age in verse 3. I'm going to just read Matthew 24 verse 3 for us and we'll get started. So it says this, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, 
and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Okay. In our first episode, we pointed out that there's two questions that these disciples are asking, when and then what. Okay. An important detail to note about the disciples' question in Matthew 20, 24, 3 is that they did not ask Jesus when the end of the world, which would have been the Greek word cosmos, right, was going to occur. Instead, they asked, what was the sign of the end of the age? In Greek, that's aeon, right? And this confusion is not helped by the fact that the popular King James Version wrongly renders the word aeon as world in this verse as well as other places. So see, for example, Matthew 13, 39 to 40, when it should actually be translated as age. Now, in the days of the King James translators, world could have been used in that way as well. So, you know, we have to be fair to them, okay? They're, they didn't intentionally mistranslate this, but it has affected translations ever since. Even some modern translations, such as the ESV and the NIV, sometimes translate aeon as world instead of age. They do it, you know, inconsistently. And this imprecise translation of this word can cause confusion in several passages and lead people to erroneously think that they refer to the end of the material universe. You see, the word aeon simply means a period of time or epoch or an age. Also significant, as John Nolan notes in his Greek commentary, he says, in the Greek text, your coming and the completion of the age are marked as belonging together by sharing a single definite article. Right? So that's important, an important Greek insight of the grammar, that both the coming and the completion of the age or the end of the age are together. They're one thing, they're one thought unit that Jesus is talking about. So we cannot separate the coming that Jesus is referring to here from the end of the age, whatever that means. Okay? So the logical question then to ask is, what age were the disciples referring to? What age were the disciples referring to? Okay, what age was it that was ending? The answer is that they were asking about the end of the Jewish age. That is the Old Testament era under the Mosaic covenant of sacrifices, the temple, rituals, etc. Right, the, the Old Testament prophecies of the promise of a new and better covenant pointed, pointed forward to this and was part of the expectations of every faithful Jew. And this is why the destruction of Jerusalem in, in AD 70 was so crucial to the understanding of the significance of what Jesus had predicted. Jesus was talking about, about the Jews of his day in Matthew 24, concerning what judgment would come upon them if they did not repent and believe in him. And this concern about the end of the age, that is the end of the Jewish age or the Old Testament age, right? the, the age of, of sacrifices and the temple and so on, comes very naturally out of this text. Because note, Jesus had just predicted that not one stone of the temple that the disciples were just gawking at is going to lay upon one another. It's going to be totally demolished. That temple is the symbol of that Old Testament sacrificial system. Right? So when he says that the, the temple is going to be destroyed, it's logical that the disciples then are going to ask, well, when is the end of this age going to happen? Milton Terry in 1898, he rightly notes this. He says, quote, the ruin of the temple was accordingly the crisis which marked the end of the pre-Messianic age. Now, what about the question of a rebuilt temple? Because there's some people who conjecture that there's going to be a rebuilt temple. Well, as Dr. Gary DeMar notes, he says, quote, earlier in his ministry, Jesus pronounced to the religious leaders that his own body was the true temple. 
the Temple of Stone was a temporary edifice that pointed to a greater permanent temple. See John 2 verses 19 to 22. Only after Jesus' resurrection did the disciples begin to understand that the true and everlasting temple is the temple of his body. The physical temple was designed to be temporary. Now, the physical Jewish temple, along with its sacrifices, were supposed to prefigure and, sh- and foreshadow the work of Christ. Thus, when Christ came and accomplished our redemption, these old covenant figures became obsolete. Therefore, the belief that of some and hopes of a third rebuilt temple contradict this theological truth. Jesus is the true temple who fulfills all that it meant. And we, as Christian believers, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Right? When the second temple was destroyed in Jesus' day, right? that was the second temple that existed then, uh, it signaled the end of the old age of signs and foreshadows and the inauguration of a new covenant age in Christ. That's the teaching of the New Testament. If unbelieving Jews rebuild another temple, to reinstitute Old Old Testament sacrifices, this will only confirm their rejection of Christ's atoning blood. To go back to the temple would be to regress in God's plan of redemption. So very different from what most dispensationalists believe about a coming rebuilt temple. That's actually not a good thing. (laughs) This understanding makes much more straightforward sense of our text in Matthew 24 that Jesus was actually talking about the temple before them and about the end of the Jewish age or the age of sacrifices and the Old Testament dispensation. Again, Dr. DeMar comments here is very helpful. He says, quote, Jesus' disciples would have immediately thought of the temple that they had pointed out to him, not a temple that had to be rebuilt sometime in the future. So to propose that Jesus was describing a rebuilt temple must be proven from scripture. The New Testament mentions nothing about a rebuilt temple. There's nothing in Matthew 24 that even hints at the rebuilding of a temple. Why would Jesus confuse his listeners and those of us who read his recorded prophecy by leaving out a crucial detail like a rebuilt temple? It doesn't make any sense. That's from Dr. DeMar's book, Last Day's Madness. Really good book. Check it out. Now, even dispensationalist writers must admit The fact that there's not one verse in the whole New Testament that speaks of a rebuilt third temple. For example, as Thomas Ice and Timothy Demi write, uh, quote, there are no Bible verses that say there's going to be a third temple, right? That's from Ice and Demi's uh, The Truth About the Last Days. And they are dispensationalists and they admit that. The Apostle Peter said of the church that, quote, you also are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 5, Christians are the living stones joined together in a living temple. You can also see Ephesians 2, 19 to 21, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 6, 19, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 for other verses that teach likewise. The real temple of God is the church with Jesus Christ as his chief cornerstone. That's in 1 Peter 2, 7. And this is why this new edifice is called a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2, 21. The old covenant temple system was one, of the pla- was one of planned obsolescence. It was never meant to be permanent. Thus, with the end of the temple sacrifices because of Christ, 
the old temple was done away with to give way to the new and better, more permanent temple. The consummation of the old age also signaled the beginning of another one. This was part of the traditional Jewish view about the Messiah based on several Old Testament passages. When the Messiah came, he would inaugurate a new age with a new and better covenant, the kingdom of heaven. Right? So compare, for example, Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 and its fulfillment in Matthew's 26, Matthew 26, 28, Mark 14, 24, and Luke 22, 20, and 1 Corinthians 11, 25, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, and Hebrews 7, 22, 8, 6 to 13, 9, 15, and 10, 14 to 18, and 12, 24. This is exactly what Jesus declared was happening in Matthew 4, 17. He said, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he says it's at hand, he means that it's near, it's close, it's at the door, not something far off. Interpretations that ignore this or try to explain these near time references do injustice to the text. It's, it, this was an event that Jesus predicted was near to his first century hearers. So therefore, the, the coming of the long-awaited Messiah signaled a major transition in redemptive history, the end of the old covenant age and the beginning of the new. The events of the New Testament happen during the overlap of these two ages, the passing away of the old covenant order and the inauguration of the new covenant age. It was a period of transition. So there's some overlap between these two ages. And this whole section builds that climax that spans, that spans sorry, from uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 23, all the way up to chapter 23, verse 39. And as commentator R.T. France notes, he says, quote, Now, having entered the temple dramatically and controversially in 21, verses 12 to 16, he leaves it with an equally emphatic and more far-reaching statement about his future. He is abandoning it, never to return. And after that, has no future except to be destroyed. What has been hitherto the earthly focus of the presence of God amongst his people is no, is no, is no longer so. There is a direct sequence from 23 verse 38. The house, which is now being left deserted by God and by Jesus, is ripe for demolition, right? To, to make way for something greater than a temple. In 12 verse 6, he says that. And you can cross-reference Mark's language surprisingly not taken up by, by Matthew, of a temple not made by hands to replace the one made by hands, Mark 14, 58. Jesus is the new and greater temple that would replace the old one, which was just a shadow of what was to come. Now, let's deal with the time of visitation, right? The, the coming that Jesus is talking about. And this is a coming in judgment. Now, also associated with the coming of the Messiah, was the impending judgment of Israel. And this is why John the Baptist called the nation to repentance and baptism to prepare them for their visitation by the judge of all, the Son of Man. His visitation would be a time of redemption for those who welcomed him and signaled a time of judgment for those who rejected him. In Luke 1.68, Zechariah prophesied concerning the coming of the Messiah and rejoiced that the Lord God of Israel had visited his people. The Greek verb used there for visited actually corresponds to the noun episkopos, which is where we get our word episcopal. This term is most often translated as bishop. Now, in ancient Greek culture, a bishop was not a religious term. It referred to a military officer who would review his troops to assess their readiness for battle. And if the troops failed their examination by the bishop, 
there would be severe penalties. So thus, the visitation or the bishoping by the Messiah also is properly understood as a divine act of bishoping. Yahweh incarnate was coming to examine his people's readiness and see if they had failed the test. They would be, and if they failed that test, they would be very severe repercussions. This also makes sense of some of, uh, of Jesus' parables to the Jews in his day about being ready for his coming. But maybe that's a topic for another episode. Let's talk a little bit about the day of the Lord. This concept of uh, God visiting his people is linked to the Old Testament concept of the coming day of the Lord, which occurs several times in Old Testament prophecy. For example, in Malachi 4 verses 1 to 5, it speaks of a coming day of judgment that, quote, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now note that the day of the Lord is dreadful because those who were unprepared for his visitation would be held accountable. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. See Matthew eleven fourteen. So therefore, Malachi 4, 5 was fulfilled in his day and Yahweh had come to judge his people. The, the prophet Amos, rebuking the Jewish people, likewise spoke of the day of the Lord. It says this in Amos 5, quote, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned, on, leaned his hand against a wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? That's Amos 5, verses 18 to 20. Zephaniah likewise warned that the day of the Lord was, uh, is near and is bitter because it is a day of wrath, because they have sinned against the Lord. See Zephaniah 1, 7 to 17. He continues to encourage the Jewish people to repent before that great day of the Lord. That's in Zephaniah 2, 1 to 3. Thus, God has sent prophets to his people to warn them to prepare for this visitation. God's visitation and the coming of the Messiah was to signal a solemn occasion for the Jewish people to be ready to receive him or face judgment by Yahweh. Jesus himself laments that they did not recognize this in Luke 19 verses 39 to 44. Speaking of the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem, quote, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Same word there. In fact, just prior to our present passage, Jesus had pronounced a series of woes against the Jewish religious leaders for their hypocrisy and legalism. You can see Matthew 23, 1-33. He ends by explaining that God had sent to them prophets to warn them, but they had disregarded and hated them, and so their blood will be upon them. That's verses 34-36. to Then Jesus laments over Jerusalem's unwillingness to come to him. That's verses 37-39. to Even out of the people's own mouths, they pronounce judgment upon themselves. Right? If you go back and look in Matthew 27, after the Roman governor Pilate had found Jesus innocent, the crowds demanded his crucifixion, and Pilate then washes his hands of the matter and, the hands, and hands Jesus over now to them to be crucified. And the people answered this way. They said, his blood be on us and our children, Matthew 27, 25. And indeed, that is exactly what would happen. God's judgment against the unbelieving Jews of that generation would soon fall. The early church historian Eusebius, who lived around 260 to 340 AD, also saw Jerusalem's destruction as an act of divine judgment and the fulfillment of Jesus' words here in Matthew 24. So the view that I'm propounding is not new. This is very, very old. Eusebius, he wrote this, quote, 
that from the time of seditions and wars and mischievous plots followed each other in quick succession and never ceased in the city and in all Judea until finally the siege of Vespasian overwhelmed them. Thus the divine vengeance overtook the Jews for the crimes that they dared to commit against the Christ. And that's from Eusebius' Church History, Volume 2. Therefore, the, the coming that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24 is not the parousia, that is the final coming of Christ at the consummation of time. Rather, it's his coming in judgment upon the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. This is what was to mark the end of the old covenant age. Now, let's talk a bit about the nearness of the end of the age. John the Baptist also proclaimed that the time was drawing near. He also said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew 3, 2. John continued to preach to the Jews. He said in Matthew 3, 10 to 12, even now the ax is laid to the, to the root of the trees. See the urgency, even now. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire is a metaphor for judgment, right? His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See the nearness of what John is warning them, right? His, that the judge is standing there and his winnowing, winnowing fork is already in his hand. He's ready to swing that thing. Okay. R.C. Sproul comments on these verses. He says this, quote, The image of the axe does not indicate that the woodsman is merely thinking about cutting down a tree or that he has merely begun the task by striking at the outer bark. The image instead is that the task is nearly complete. The axe has already penetrated to the core of the tree, hinting that one more decisive stroke will make it fall. The fan refers to the winnowing fork, used by a, a farmer um, to separate the wheat from the chaff. The farmer is not heading to his barn to get the fan. It's already in his hand, and he's about to, to begin winnowing. That's from Sproul's book, Last Days According to Jesus. Great book. Go pick it up. Jesus himself told his disciples directly in Matthew 10, verses 22 to 23, that they would not finish going through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes in judgment. Right? Uh, he, are we really to believe that 2,000 years later, his disciples still haven't gone through all of the cities of Israel? Clearly, Jesus saw his coming in judgment upon the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem as near. He even told the Jews straightforwardly in Matthew 21 verses 40 to 43 that the kingdom of God would be taken away from them and given to a people producing its fruit. So thus, in Jesus' day, as the coming Messiah, Judgment upon the Jewish people was imminent. If they received Christ, they would have found redemption and blessing. However, because they rejected him, judgment and condemnation awaited them. Although some Jews followed Jesus, the vast majority of them in those days rejected their Messiah and so heaped up condemnation upon their heads. Now, let's take a look at the New Testament expectations. This coming judgment on the unbelieving Jews was the expectation of the first century church, which was often persecuted by the same Jews. There are many other New Testament passages that emphasize this near expected coming judgment of Christ in the first century, which would mark the end of the old covenant age. So let me give you a few examples. Romans 13, 
verses 11 to 12, reassures believers that their salvation is nearer than when we first believed and that the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says that what happened to Israel was an example and written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come, which is a direct reference to the end of the Jewish age. Notice that Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's writing as if this is near to them. He says that the ends of the ages has, have come to them in the first century. Paul in Philippians 4.5 reminds believers that the Lord is near. Near to who? Near to them. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 14 to 16, Paul emphasizes that the eminent judgment would be poured out upon the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Notice again the near time reference. He says wrath has come to them. That's, that's near, right? In, in 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21, he writes that Christ has appeared in these last times. When was that? In the first century, right? Peter's writing to his first century audience. And he says that Christ has appeared in these last times, in his day, and encourages believers to sobriety and prayer because the end of all things is at hand. 1 Peter 4, 7, right? In Hebrews 1, 2, it says that God has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 1, 2, right? Obviously, they were already in the last days at the time of the writing of this letter. Otherwise, why would he say in these last days? The author goes on to show that now, once at the end of the ages, he, that's Jesus, has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself in Hebrews 9, 26. They were already at the end of the ages in the first century. Some more. James 5 verses 8 and 9 encourages believers in his day to be patient because, quote, the coming of the Lord is at hand and that the judge is standing right at the door. Again, these are near time references. 1 John 2.18 says that it is the last hour. And he said that in his day. And in the book of Revelation, he repeatedly emphasizes that he was writing about, quote, the things which must shortly take place, Revelation 1.1. For the time is near, Revelation 1.3, and also sim similarly in 22.10. And again, the things which must shortly take place, Revelation 22.6. And in Revelation, Jesus himself repeatedly says that he is coming quickly in Revelation 3.11, 22.7, and 12 and 20. Okay? So, if the New Testament writers were meaning to communicate about events far off in the future, you know, they sure chose some really unusual words to say it. But if we take the plain meaning of these texts and, uh, and their original audience seriously, it would seem that for the Christians in the first century, the end of the ages had come and was close at hand and that the event of judgment on unfaithful Israel was near because the judge was right at the door. It seems like all of the New Testament writers made it a point to remind and warn the, the believers that they wrote to of the expected and soon coming judgment of Christ. Why? Because he had clearly instructed them about it. Now, that's the testimony of the New Testament. Let's take a look at some early church fathers and their testimony, some early writers of the church, okay? There are also some early writers of the church who attest to this. Okay, Ignatius of Antioch, who died in 110 AD, around there, 
right? So very, very early, right? He's second, like just the beginning of the second century he dies. So he's living at the time of the, the, of the apostles. In his epistle to the Magnesians, we read, quote, it is absurd to speak of Jesus Christ with the tongue and to cherish in the mind a Judaism which has now come to an end, right? So here he clearly sees the old age of Judaism as already having come to an end with the destruction of the temple. Now, Justin Martyr, who is around uh, 147 AD, so he's in the second century. Uh, in his first apology, in chapter 53, he writes this, quote, for with what reason should we believe of a crucified man that he is the firstborn of the unbegotten God and himself will pass judgment on the whole human race unless we had found testimonies concerning him published before he came and was born as a man. And unless we saw that things had happened accordingly, the devastation of the land of the Jews. Now here, Justin is using the fact that the temple was actually destroyed, as Jesus had said in Matthew 24, as an apologetic to prove the truth of Christianity. And this is what the, the early church did. This is what like a lot of the um, early believers after the time of the apostles, this, is, this was one of their major arguments that Jesus really was who he said he was. Hegesippus, another early testimony, and he lives around AD 170 to 175, right? He's writing around then, um, tying the persecution of the apostle James to the destruction of Jerusalem. He writes in his commentary on Acts, quote, and so he suffered martyrdom and they buried him on the spot and the pillar erected to his memory still remains close by the temple. This man was a true witness to both Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. And shortly after that, Vespasian besieged Judea, taking them captive. So Hegesippus here records that the apostle James was a faithful witness trying to convince both Jews and Gentiles that Jesus was the promised Messiah and to put their faith in him prior to Jerusalem's destruction. James's urgency and that of the other apostles was spurred on by the fact that they knew that what Christ had predicted. And thus, he said that the judge is standing at the door, James 5, 9. There are other early church writers who likewise give testimony, which we'll cite in future episodes as we continue to examine this passage. But I hope that this is a good sampling to show that this is not some novel belief, but one that is rooted in history and the early believers. It will become evident as we continue in this series that it is actually the dispensational and futurist interpretation that is new and novel and a new invention. Now, let's take a look at the exegetical necessity of the first century's fulfillment. Right? So to recap, we saw in our first episode that Jesus says that all these things, referring to everything that he predicted prior to Matthew 24, um, verses 4 to 31, everything in those verses must take place before the people in his day died. Jesus repeated this at the beginning of this discourse in Matthew 23, 36, and at the end also in Matthew 24, 34, both you know, forming a bookend to emphasize the point that this generation will not pass away before everything he said would happen. This would be within this generation, which is typically understood to be about 40 years. Right? His prediction, if we track with the timeline, right, when Jesus said those words, would have been said around 80, 30 to 33. So the destruction of Jerusalem falls exactly within the time frame of a generation, 40 years. So if you add 40 to 30, right, you get 70, 70 AD. So if everything Jesus predicted in this passage 
did not actually happen in that generation in the first century, it makes him a false prophet. And as you can see, this is no small matter. Now, so far, I've set up the argument that Jesus' prediction in Matthew 24 had to have been fulfilled in the first century, and Jesus really did visit the Jews in Jerusalem in judgment. For many of you, you know, that might seem very problematic. How is it that such apocalyptic language in Matthew 24 describing such seemingly worldwide terrible cataclysms could possibly have already happened? On the surface, that could seem very difficult to make sense of. However, in the following episodes in this series, we're going to clearly see that everything, everything that Jesus predicted actually did happen in history, just like he said it would. God has preserved a clear record of this to assure us. So I hope that you tune in and keep listening to the rest of this series. In our next um, episode in this series, we're going to begin to take a look at the fulfillment of some of the signs of the end of the age that Jesus had predicted. So we've laid some groundwork. Our first episode, looking at what Jesus meant by this generation. And in this episode, looking at what he meant by the end of the age. So in our next episode, we're going to start looking at some of the signs. I hope that you found this uh, series so far to be in- interesting and giving you some good food for thought on this topic, especially if you're reconsidering it again from fresh eyes. Until next time, soli deo gloria. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.